disciples, the resurrection was a surprising and a happy ending to what had been a sad story. But it was more. It launched them on a new adventure. The resurrection was the beginning of faith, not its ending. After the resurrection, the disciples would need more faith, not less. For Jesus is now alive and well, and his disciples will still be expected to follow him. In a scene from the 1977 television miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth, you've seen it, it's been replayed many times. The political Jew who has conspired with Judas, he enters the tomb, and he discovers the man that he had helped crucify has risen from the dead. It's the closing scene of the story. He gazes off into the distance, and he whispers to himself, now it begins. Now it all begins. Well, tonight we study the end of a gospel, but the start of the gospel. Remember, John 19 recorded the bloody ordeal. It began with Jesus' scourging, and it ended with his burial. In between was abuse and nails in searing agony, in humiliation, in unimaginable pain, in a broken heart. Jesus gives it all, his back to the executioners, his garment to the soldiers, his mother to John, his spirit to the Father, his life for you and me. Pilate then gives the body of Jesus to a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. Sadly, they were in a rush. Joseph and Nicodemus and the women. At this point, the traditions of their Passover Seder were more pressing than providing Jesus, their Passover Savior, a decent burial. Considering their time constraints, they did the best they could. Then they rolled the stone over the mouth of the tomb. They decided to return on Sunday morning and finish the job. It is now the first day of the week. Chapter 20 begins. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, the Greek word that gets translated early is a technical term. It referred to the fourth or the last watch of the night from 3 a.m. until 6 a.m. Mark chapter 16, verse 2 says that the women came when the sun had risen. John says, while it was still dark. Perhaps they left in the dark, but they arrived after sunup. Matthew says the women came as the day, quote, began to dawn. Well, then she, that is Mary Magdalene, she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And remember, this was the special title that John used for himself. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Realize at this point, Mary doesn't realize that Jesus has risen. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. John was younger. He was better, in better shape, perhaps. I'm sure Peter took off sprinting as fast as he could go, but 
you know what happened? He petered out. As a matter of fact, he'd been eating a lot of crow lately, a rooster. Over the previous days, it had all gotten a little heavy on him. John outran him to the tomb. Verse 5, and he, that is John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, he finally makes it, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. And here is every mother's favorite part of the Easter story. She's quick to point this out to her kids, that even after the resurrection, Jesus folded his clothes. All right, kids, fold those clothes. Verse 8. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also. John had won the race and had looked into the tomb, but he waited on Peter to catch up and actually enter first. Now he follows Peter into the tomb. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now the Greek term translated saw, it means to see with comprehension and understanding. Something caught John's attention and sparked his faith. Maybe it was those folded clothes. Perhaps John quickly calculated in his mind if the body had been moved, the grave clothes would have gone with the corpse. If robbers had tampered with the body, they wouldn't have taken the time to fold the clothes. I mean, the folded clothes meant that Jesus had risen. That's how John saw it. Seriously, I think we should add neatness to the virtues of Jesus. That John saw the folded clothes, or perhaps the way they were folded. He knew that the tidying up had been done by Jesus. By the way, today, Jesus is still tidying up. He's tidying up lives, like your life and like my life. Well, then the disciples went away again to their own homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Mary had returned for a second inspection. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Bible commentator Warren Wearsby, he says this resembled the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. And I agree. Between God's law inside the ark and God's love above the ark sat the mercy seat. This was, where the, this was the golden slab. This was where the blood of the sacrifice was applied. It's where the demands of the law resting in the ark and the love of God above the ark were reconciled at the mercy seat. And at either end of the mercy seat, as you looked at the ark, were two angels, similar to what Mary saw here in the tomb. The angels that appeared here, I believe, remind us that Jesus is our mercy seat. He's the place where God has reconciled the law and his love. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And this term means wailing. Mary wasn't just whimpering and sniffling. She was bawling her eyes out. She said to them, 
because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now understand the scene. Two angels in white, and these are obvious angels. They're sitting at the head and the foot of where the body had laid. And Mary could care less about the angels. She's upset. She's missing Jesus. And here's the point. When you're longing for Jesus, nothing else will do. No other substitute will do. Not even an angel or two. Ever so often the church gets preoccupied with angels. You know, a fascination arises. Books get written. The Christian community kind of goes on an angel craze. We, we see it happen every few years. Several years ago, Touched by an Angel was the popular television show. Yet here, Mary sees and speaks to two angels, but her heart and mind are preoccupied with Jesus. And this should be a lesson to us all. So you can mistakenly allow the things of God to distract you from God himself. Don't get caught up in angels. Get caught up in Jesus. Angels testify of Jesus. They never take his place. Verse 14. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Now why did she not know? We're not told. It could have been a spiritual blindness that God just sort of put a veil over her eyes. You remember when the risen Lord joined the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke says their eyes were restrained. It could be that since Mary had concluded that Jesus was dead and had no expectation of seeing him alive, she just failed to recognize the living Lord. I don't think so, but that's a possibility. But there is a more likely explanation that I tend to favor. Isaiah 52 verse 14 had predicted that Messiah's visage, his appearance, would be so marred and so disfigured that he would no longer even look like a man. The cruelty and the brutality of the Romans ensured the fulfillment of this prophecy. Remember, his face had been beaten. His brow had been punctured by thorns. His beard had literally been plucked out, yanked out of his skin. No doubt if Jesus had been given a funeral, it would have been closed casket. You wouldn't have been able to stomach seeing his body. Jesus could have passed for a boxer who had gone 15 rounds or resembled the victim of a car crash who'd been thrown face first through the windshield. It was that brutal. Later in John chapter 20, we'll see scars in Jesus' hands and in his feet and in his side. Why then wouldn't there be scars on his back and on his brow, on his face and on his cheeks? I believe that Mary failed to recognize Jesus because his face was so scarred, so disfigured. His appearance was unlike the man that she had known before. It's interesting that in Revelation chapter 5 or 6, this same John who writes this gospel, he sees Jesus in heaven. And he says, I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Apparently, Jesus still bears the scars of his crucifixion. 
You know, it may be a shocker for you and I when we get to heaven and when we see Jesus face to face. I think we'll weep when we see his scars and when we realize what our sin cost him. You know, it's been said the only thing in heaven that's man-made are Jesus' scars. Yet those same scars will remove all doubt that he really loves you and me. Over time, you'll grow to love those scars. Pot marks and scars are repulsive on earth, but in heaven, you'll admire Jesus' scars for all eternity. But for the moment, outside the tomb, it was his scars, I think, that blinded Mary from identifying her Lord. Well, verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She's supposing him to be the gardener. And notice it must have been a garden tomb. That's one of the reasons we believe it was Gordon's Calvary and the garden tomb right behind it. Supposing him to be the gardener said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where have you laid him? And I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. When he spoke her name, it opened her eyes. And I'm sure it was the way Jesus spoke her name. I'm sure he had an interesting way that he spoke her name. Oh, when Mary's mom called her name, it was to scold. When the men in her life spoke her name, They were trying to hit on her. When her neighbors said Mary, they were out to judge. But when Jesus spoke Mary's name, it communicated forgiveness and acceptance. When Jesus said Mary, she knew that she was loved. Listen, can you hear Jesus speaking your name? Notice, too, how Mary refers to Jesus. A Jew could show his or her teacher varying degrees of respect. At the lowest level, you could call him Rab. Hey, Rab. To add a measure of respect, you would use the term Rabbi. Well, the highest honor was Rabboni. And this is what Mary called Jesus. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and to your God. I I used to think that the reason Jesus warned her not to cling to him was because he was radioactive or something. You know, because maybe there was some kind of physical reason that she wasn't supposed to grab him and hold on to him or whatever. I don't think that was the case at all. We're not told of her posture But we assume that Mary had fallen on her face and grabbed the master's feet. And that would have been appropriate. Think of all that Jesus had meant to Mary. I mean, earlier in her life, she had played the prostitute. She had been a sleepover for demons. When she met Jesus, he had turned her whole life right side up. She was now free. She had been forgiven and accepted. The carpenter of Nazareth had built for her a brand new life. Thus, when Mary lost Jesus, she lost everything. 
See, she had no family. She had no friends. She had no businesses to return to like the other disciples. No, Mary was homeless. When she lost Jesus, she lost everything. And this is why Mary Magdalene clung to Jesus with all her might. She had seen him crucified. Now she would never let him go again. She wanted him to stay with her forever. But Jesus redirects her affections with what seems like cryptic words. He says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended. Jesus is setting Mary at ease. He's saying to her, she has nothing to fear. Her relationship with him is not ending. It's just changing. See, he's saying to Mary, I'm only here a short time. Don't get attached to me in the present, in my physical form. For when I ascend to the Father, we'll still relate to each other. But now in a new way, we'll relate spiritually, not tangibly. So don't cling to me, Mary. You've got to learn to let me go. Mary, like you and me, will need to learn. Mary will need to learn to relate to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will now dwell inside of Mary. She'll have a relationship with Jesus, but it'll be through the Holy Spirit. Through the Spirit, she'll continue in the mercy that she has received from Jesus. It's been said when Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples turned and they found him in their hearts through the Holy Spirit. Thus, rather than tighten her grip, she'll need to strengthen her faith. That's why he said, don't cling to me, Mary. Verse 18 sums up the encounter. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, and the Greek word here is very forceful. It means locked and bolted. These frightened disciples had barricaded themselves in. This makes the suggestion that the disciples beat up the Roman guards and stole the body of Jesus to foster a hoax totally preposterous. I mean, these timid disciples were too afraid to venture out into the front yard. They're not going to take on some hardened soldiers. But Jesus stuns them. Where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now remember, this is the first time the risen Lord appears to the disciples since they forsook him and since they denied him. I'm sure they were a bit apprehensive about this encounter. They weren't quite sure uh, whether this was going to be a happy reunion or not. I mean, they deserved his wrath and his condemnation. Instead, notice how Jesus approaches them. His first words conveyed his forgiveness. Peace be with you. Now when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Realize Jesus' resurrected body was not a different body. No, this was the same body born to Mary. This was the body that walked on water. This was the body that had been nailed to the cross. Again, you could see the scars that remain from the ordeal. 
the same chemicals and the same organs that died and had begun to deteriorate had been halted by God in some way. God had revived Jesus' body. God had reassembled its molecules, but this time in a new structure and with new features. Jesus' resurrected body could now pass through walls and could travel distances instantly, yet it was tangible and touchable. In fact, it could handle a plate at a fish fry. I mean, this was really the body of Jesus. Ghosts don't eat fish. Jesus was no longer flesh and blood, for his blood had been spilt, but he was still flesh and bone. Jesus' glorified body was the same body that Mary had laid in the manger when he was born, and yet soon it would be the body that would ascend into the clouds. Through the process of resurrection, it emerged no longer bound by the limits of time and space. I like to think of Jesus' resurrected body as a historic building. Say a historic building in downtown Stone Mountain. Say it gets destroyed by a fire. It's damaged. They come back in and they renovate it. They renovate the older structure. The older structure gets rebuilt. But included now are some much-needed upgrades. In other words, as they rebuild it, it gets modified and changed. It gets brought up to code. It's the same building, but it's now new and improved. And this is what we can look forward to when Jesus raptures the church. We're going to get brought up to heaven's codes. It's going to be the same body that's going to be resurrected, but it's going to be a new body fit for heaven. Remember, Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection. That means he's the prototype we too will receive resurrection bodies with Jesus-like properties. No more will I ever have to worry about locking my keys in the car. You know, a problem for me. Rather than pick the lock, I'm just going to slide my atoms between the atoms of the car panel. Something we atomses can do. Presto, I'll be in the car. Actually, I won't need a car or an airplane. Want to go to Honolulu? Boom, snap my fingers, I'll be there. In fact, Jesus' ascension into heaven proved that not even the earth's gravitational pull will be a concern for a Christian with a resurrected body. As Paul said to the Corinthians, one day these mortal bodies will put on immortality and these corruptible bodies will put on incorruption. And quite frankly, I can't wait. It's kind of tough getting 60, but I'm not looking to the 60s and the 70s. I'm looking beyond that to when I get my resurrected body. I'm going to have no aches and no pains. Verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Notice this, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. This would have seemed like quite a stretch to any onlooker at the time. I mean, these disciples had barricaded themselves behind walls, walls of fear, walls of worry. They, they don't look quite like an army ready to go out and fight battles for Jesus. And yet Jesus is here saying that he's going to send them out. As he's gone out, they're gonna, he's going to send them out. 
You look at this and you say, well, yeah, but they're going to need some help. And here it comes. And when he has said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The prerequisite for salvation is to believe on the resurrection of Jesus. You remember Romans chapter 10 verse 9 declared, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. They've believed in the risen Christ. Now God's spirit enters their spirit and sparks a new birth in their hearts. I believe it's here that the original disciples became born again. In John 14, verse 17, Jesus had said of the Holy Spirit, He dwells with you and He will be in you. Here Jesus makes good on that promise. The disciples receive the Holy Spirit. In the Garden of Eden, God breathed into the nostrils of the first man, Adam, and He became a living soul. Now Jesus breathes on His disciples and they come alive spiritually through the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, he says, And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gave his original disciples the authority to bind and to loose. This was rabbinical language for prohibiting and permitting. To bind was to prohibit someone to a specific law. To loose was to permit them, free them from that law. And this was the special authority that allowed the Holy Spirit to establish normative faith and practice for the church. This was what guided the early church fathers in the canonization of the New Testament. When the Apostles wrote the New Testament, they were in essence binding and loosing. They were going back to the old law. They were binding them to certain laws. They were freeing them or loosing them from other laws. And in doing so, they were codifying the rules, you could say, the normative practice for the early church. And because Jesus gave this authority just to the 12 apostles, This is what helped to canonize the New Testament or or establish what were the legitimate books of the Bible because he only gave this authority to bind and loose to these 11 apostles. This laid the foundation for Orthodox Christianity. And here Jesus extends this authority to repentance and forgiveness. In other words, think about it. How does a person know that they have received God's forgiveness? I mean, does God tear up the ticket? I mean, does he issue a certificate of pardon? No. We gain assurance of our salvation because we meet the conditions established by the disciples who first followed Jesus and what they wrote in the New Testament. And you remember their conditions were twofold. You had to repent And believe. Thus, when you meet the conditions, then you know you're forgiven. This binding and loosing is what happened in Acts chapter 15 when the church in Jerusalem met to decide if Gentile believers still needed to be circumcised. Of course, the verdict was no. Salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
this was the decision made by the early church by these same apostles who had the authority to bind and to loose. As a matter of fact, the code, the rules that the apostles set down are still the rules that we follow today. This is still what is normative for the church, our faith and our practice. And it will never change. Why? Because the men who were in charge of determining this doctrine are now all dead. This was a special authority that Jesus gave to his original men, and it ended with them. And he gives it to them here. Now Thomas called the twin. Suppose Thomas had a sibling running around who looked just like him maybe. Before it's through, we'll probably be able to identify. There's probably a few of Thomas's twins here in the room tonight. One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. Now, the first disciples, as I said, were granted special authority, this authority to bind and loose. But don't think that faith came easy for these first apostles. It didn't. Case in point was Thomas. Remember, he wasn't around when Jesus first appeared to the disciples. He had to learn faith the hard way. And Thomas learns another important lesson, another important truth taught in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. There it says, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. As Thomas discovered, when believers gather, the risen Christ shows up. That's why it's dangerous to miss a meeting with Christians. You might just miss out on meeting the risen Lord. Just ask Thomas. He had missed out. He wasn't there for some reason. And he missed seeing the risen Christ. I'll bet Thomas was never remiss again. Well, the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So Thomas said to them, Unless I see his hands, in his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Boy, Thomas was a hardcore skeptic, wasn't he? He wanted tangible proof. He was a show-me disciple. He wasn't going to believe without the evidence. And after eight days, took eight days, he waited. His disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Again, Jesus comes to them with the intention of peace. And then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand there and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. We're not told whether Thomas did, are we? We're not told his reaction, but I'm sure the offer itself melted his doubt and his unbelief. I doubt if he stuck his finger in Jesus' side or touched his hands. I'll bet he bowed to his knees. He fell on his face in the presence of the risen Lord, and he worshiped him. For Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Note Thomas calls Jesus God. And Jesus says nothing to rebuke or correct Thomas. 
It would be blasphemy for a human to receive worship. But Jesus was no mere mortal. As Thomas put it, he was Lord and God. This is one of the strongest affirmations of the deity of Jesus in the Bible. And how ironic, it comes from the lips of a notorious doubter. Blaise Pascal once said, Only he who doubts can truly believe. Working through honest doubts is what makes for a much stronger faith. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, the world today is dominated by the Thomas mentality toward faith, that seeing is believing. But Jesus teaches us that the very opposite is true, that believing is seeing. Wait until you see and you'll wait too late. The next time the risen Christ appears on earth, it'll be to bring judgment. Today we see through spiritual eyes. The resurrection appearances of Jesus lasted a mere seven weeks. When Jesus ascended into heaven, they stopped. Today, we don't see until we believe. It's post-faith that Jesus opens our eyes. It's then that he helps us sense his presence and feel his power and know his mercy. Verse 30, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. And I suppose this might be the most frustrating verse in all the Bible. What were those signs? Just imagine all the wonders that went untold. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. We don't know all there is to know, but we do have all we need to know. We have all we need to know to believe. You know, it's interesting. None of the four Gospels were intended to be your typical biography, which includes everything about a person's life. They leave out certain standard biographical information, things that we might want to know. The Gospels weren't biographies. They weren't intended as biographies. They were testimonials. They were written to provoke faith. They were basically lengthy witnessing tracks to prove that Jesus is God and that by believing in him, we can have eternal life. Well, John continues in chapter 21. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, that is the Sea of Galilee. And in this way, he showed himself Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, well, we'll go with you. They go fishing, but again, they taste failure. For they went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. One commentary I read points out that Peter's words in the Greek language are in the present progressive tense, which means they speak of a continual activity. In other words, he's not just suggesting a recreational fishing trip. Peter is returning to work. 
When he says, let's go fishing, he's going back to his trade. Remember, Peter was a fisherman. He left behind a business to follow Jesus. The three and a half years on the road with Jesus had been thrilling days. But now Peter's thinking, man, it's time to get back to the real world. It's time to be responsible again. All those heady days of faith in God for his next meal or for a place to sleep were over. It's time again to wet some nets. Let's start taking care of business again. And if it's true that Peter was returning to his old vocation, it's obvious why. I'm sure that he felt that his days in the ministry were over. For, I mean, he had failed so catastrophically. The breakup of his faith was an 8.0 on the Richter scale. I mean, Peter's denial of Jesus was the big one, friend. How could God ever use him again in any kind of official capacity? Hey, it was fun while it lasted, but old Peter, he figured it'd never be the same. I'm sure he felt that he was out of a job. It was time to look for some secular work. You know, when we fail in one area, it's common to bolster a sagging self-esteem by falling back on an old proficiency. If he couldn't make it as a disciple, Peter knew he could catch fish. Yet notice those words. They caught nothing. Let me suggest to you, if you've been called by God to serve the Lord in a certain capacity, you will never be happy or successful doing anything else. Never. Paul wrote in Romans 11 verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God sees to it that only fishing, the only fishing Peter will ever be good at again is fishing for men. Verse 4. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? Hey, you caught anything? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And I love Warren Wearsby's comment here. He says, the distance between success and failure was the width of the ship. Apparently, they weren't off by much. Peter and his pals were extremely discouraged. Now add fishing to their failures. But they were closer to success than they realized. All they needed was a little fine-tuning, just a few words of direction from Jesus. Perhaps you've tackled a task It's gotten the best of you. You feel you've got a long way to go. But you may be closer to success than you think. Just the width of a boat. You thought the task was a lost cause, but in reality, all you need is just a little divine fine-tuning. Well, so they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Remember, this wasn't the first time that this had happened to them. Remember back in Luke chapter 5 at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? It records a similar incident where Peter and John, they experienced the very same thing with Jesus. The similarity between the two miracles had to have caused some recognition in their minds. And it did for John. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, 
Oh my, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. As soon as John saw that the nets were full of fish, it clicked. His head started spinning in, in the direction of the man on shore, and he shouts, Guys, that's the Lord. I believe John includes this story to teach us how we need to relate to the risen Christ. For you never know when Jesus will reveal himself to you. Jesus is alive and well. He's running around loose out there. Jesus is out there somewhere at all times. And he's willing to come to us when we least expect it. When we're wrapped up in ordinary stuff, like pastoring, or fishing, or even working, or playing golf, Jesus can suddenly reveal himself. It's also interesting that John, that disciple whom Jesus loved, was the first to shout, it's the Lord. You remember, John was the one who sat next to Jesus at the Last Supper. He was the disciple who laid his head on Jesus' shoulder. It's revealing that the disciple closest to Jesus' heart was first to recognize his presence. You want to know how to recognize Jesus in your daily life? Get close to his heart. Love him. Spend time with him. I believe the more time we spend with Jesus, the more we pray, the more we study his word, the more we get close to his heart, the quicker we'll be to hear his voice and to recognize his movements in our lives. Well, verse 7. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. And for the life of me, I have no idea why Peter put on his coat to jump into the water. The outer garment was bulky. It was heavy. Peter had taken it off to work. And you wonder why in the world he put it on to jump in and take a swim. He puts on a down-lined parka to jump into the water. The only explanation I can think of is Peter's just being Peter. He's reacting, not thinking. Wasn't that Peter? He was always reacting, not thinking. Peter was an impulsive person. But give him credit. He was never short on passion. He was never short on enthusiasm. You remember John got to the tomb and he just kind of looked in. And then Peter comes barreling up behind him. Boom, 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 boom. And goes right into the tomb. That was Peter. He was never short on enthusiasm. There's something about that that Jesus likes. Whenever Peter saw Jesus, he was always first to jump in. In that sense, let's be like Peter. Verse 8, but the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, that's about 300 feet, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus already had breakfast on the fire. And in a sense, he was setting up a classroom. For these were the props that Jesus would use to teach his disciples some important lessons. Remember where Peter denied the Lord? It was by a fire, a fire of coals, back in the high priest's house. 
Notice, too, the bread and the fish. These were the elements that Jesus had used to feed the 5,000. And it was that miracle that led directly to Peter's stunning confession a few days later at Caesarea Philippi when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think both the catch and the campfire were visual aids to sort of get Peter's attention. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. A wet net and 153 large fish would have weighed several hundred pounds. That Peter dragged it to the shore by himself confirms that he was a strong man. Tradition testifies to his strength and his uh, bulk. Now, there have been volumes of commentary written explaining the symbolism of such an exact number, 153. In fact, some folks have taught all, they've taught all kinds of theories about this 153. One man said that there were 153 different types of fish, and thus catching 153 represented the whole world. I've heard it suggested that there were 153 nations at the time, and thus, again, representing the whole world. John counted the catch and recorded 153 fish. Could it be the number 153 actually means there were 153 fish? Wow, what a revelation. Could be. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Notice Jesus invites them not to lunch, not to dinner, but to breakfast. You eat breakfast in the morning, don't you? At the outset of your day. And this was a new beginning, a new day for the disciples. Jesus is about to reinstate his disciples and reaffirm their calling to the ministry. It's going to be a new day in their lives. And notice the precedent. Jesus is about to send the disciples to feed his sheep, but he first feeds them. And here's a foundational principle in the kingdom of God. Before you feed others, you first need to feed yourself on the bread of life on Jesus Christ. You need to be fed. Then you go out and fed, uh, feed others. Verse 13, Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish this is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And here's the big question. These what? English teachers call this a dangling participle. Does it mean these men? Does it mean these fish? Do you love me more than your former occupation? Jesus is asking Peter if he's willing to leave all a second time and come and follow him. I believe Jesus is reminding Peter of the boast that he made at the Last Supper. 
You remember his arrogance there in the upper room? Back in Matthew chapter 26, verse 33, Peter elevated himself above the 11 disciples and he made the haughty statement, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Wow, did he ever live to regret that comment? Jesus is recalling that boast by essentially asking Peter, if you really love me more than the other disciples, why did you deny me? John continues, Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. Now when Jesus asks Peter, Do you love me? The Greek word that he uses for love is the word agape. There's a word play going on here. The Greek language had different words for differing degrees of love. Agape was the strongest. It spoke of God's love. Agape love is a sacrificial and unselfish and undying kind of love. This was the love that Peter had boasted that he had toward Jesus. But now when Jesus asks him, Peter, do you agape me? He responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But now Peter uses a different word for love. He uses the word phileo, or brotherly love. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia, phileo. Phileo love was a notch below agape. Obviously, this time, Peter is not so quick to boast, is he? He knows the courage and the boldness and the bravery that he thought he had, but was missing at crunch time. Peter did love Jesus, but from here on out, he would never trust in his own strength to demonstrate that love. And so, Peter, do you agape me? Lord, I I phileo you. Verse 16, Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Again, it's the Greek word agape. And Peter responds again with phileo. Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo or I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This time Jesus alters his question. And he says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you phileo me? kind of comes down to Peter's level. Peter was grieved by the whole line of questioning. But Jesus is revealing that he knows where Peter's at. His strength or lack thereof is no secret. He's saying, Peter, it's better to be honest. It's better to admit a weakness than to make a prideful and rash boast. If phileo is all you've got, then I'll take it and I'll grow it. Jesus took Peter's phileo, or his brotherly love, and he grew it into an agape, or a sacrificial love. And any idea why Jesus repeats his question here three times? Why three times? Well, Peter had denied the Lord three times. And Jesus is reinstalling Peter to the ministry. He's reversing his failure He's giving Peter a brand new start. He's repeating his calling now three times. 
He's extending forgiveness to all three of Peter's denials. What a comfort that was. As long as the mercy of Jesus is in play, the game's never over. There's still another chance for redemption. And notice what Peter's supposed to do if he loves Jesus. Feed my sheep. And did you know this is the way you love Jesus? It's by loving his people. You can say you love Jesus, but it rings hollow if you're not willing to feed a new sheep. When we feed someone's spiritual hunger, when we lead a lost soul back to God, back into the fold, then we're really loving Jesus and we're doing what he's called all of us to do. Verse 18, most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus' words to Peter, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry your, you where you do not wish. Sounds so ominous, doesn't it? Well, it was. For these words proved to be prophetic at Peter's own crucifixion. It was on July 19th, 40, 64 AD. A fire broke out in the city of Rome. It burned for 10 days and scorched two-thirds of the downtown district. Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Rumors began to circulate in Rome that nutso Nero had set the blaze, that Nero was a pyro, that he liked to see stuff burn. The Caesar countered these rumors by blaming the inferno on the Christians. And to divert attention from himself, Nero launched a massive roundup of the Christian leaders. Peter and Paul were arrested and martyred. Paul was beheaded for his Lord. And at Peter's request, he was crucified upside down. He chose that unorthodox posture because he felt himself unworthy to be executed like his Lord. Jesus' prediction here in John 21 was ultimately fulfilled. He was girded and taken where he didn't want to go. Earlier in John 13, verse 37, in the upper room, Peter had boasted, Lord, I will lay down my life for your sake. Peter failed that night and denied the Lord three times, but he got another opportunity to prove his love. And through the power of the Spirit, this time he succeeded. In the end, he loved Jesus with agape, or sacrificial love. So if all you've got to give him tonight is phileo love, well then give him that love. And let him grow it. Let him make you stronger. He will. Verse 20. Then Peter, turning around, saw John, the disciple, whom Jesus loved, following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper. Again, this is John. And he said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Or he had said at the time, who is the one who betrayed you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? You've told me what my destiny is. Well, what about him? I love Peter because I'm just like him so often. I mean, how often do we try this same tactic? The Lord is dealing with you. He's touching your heart. And what do you say? Well, Lord, what, what about him? 
But Lord, what about her? If I can find someone worse off than me, then I don't have to deal with my own problems. It's a lot more fun pointing out someone else's flaws than it is working on my own. Verse 22, Jesus said to Peter, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. One of the most subtle traps in the Christian life is to compare my orders or my calling with someone else's. The details of God's plan differs from believer to believer. What's deemed necessary for you is not always what God has planned for me and vice versa. This is why we all need to keep our eyes on Jesus and our nose out of the other guy's business. If God wants you to be concerned for your brother, he'll lay it on your heart to do so. But until he does, we need to take the approach. What is that to you? You follow me. Then this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Rumors began to swirl now around John that Jesus had made him invincible. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? The point is, is that the servant doesn't have a say. It's the master who gives the orders, not the servant. If Jesus schedules a martyr's death for Peter and a rapture for John, then so be it. That's his prerogative. We're not the master, we're the servant, and our job is just to follow the orders. Well, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Again, John is speaking of himself in the third person. And then he closes his gospel. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen.